I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. All right, okay. Welcome to Nature, Biotechnology's First Rounders Podcast. I'm the host. My name is Brady Huggett. And um, yeah, happy holidays. Happy New Year. If those things fall on your calendar, I this will be released um, as 2020 has just begun. So happy New Year. The guest today is Greg Verdine. But before we get to that, we are launching a new podcast. The podcast is called Forum. It is a look at recent advancements, recent papers published in Nature Biotechnology and elsewhere. These papers will be discussed with leading researchers in the field. I will be the host of that show, but I will not be doing all the interviewing. I'll do some, of course, but also our research team will be interviewing uh, these researchers about these new papers. The show is going to be launched in January. Again, it is called Forum. I will drop the first one into this RSS feed. The first one will show up in your podcast app. It'll show up under the First Rounders banner as a sort of bonus. Uh, if you like it, you can then search Nature Biotechnology and Forum, and you'll find that podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, this podcast will be there. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. It should be a good show. It's actually, I think, a better format, uh, a better way to discuss new advancements and new papers than maybe the written word. So Forum, that's coming in January. Okay, now back to First Rounders. Greg Verdine. So Greg Verdine is a longtime professor and researcher at Harvard University. He is the current CEO of LifeMind Therapeutics and Fog Pharma. And he's just a real leader, too, in chemical biology and has started many companies. Uh, what did we talk about? Well, we talked about Greg growing up in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey and being a piney, as he says, what that means. We talked about the accident um, that paralyzed his father uh, from the neck down when Greg was quite young. We talked about how he became interested in drugging the undruggable. We talked about that. And uh, why, why he, you know, he started many companies as sort of a co-founder, uh, you know, his IP behind them. But he is full-time CEO of LifeMine and Fog Farm. We talked about why he made that decision now. All that and more. So let's pick this up here. Uh, I, you know, I, I recorded this at Fog Pharma in a, in a conference room. And for a while, we just sort of talked about the space and uh, the area where the company is. They're, they're in West Cambridge. They are not in Kendall Square. And you know, Greg was sort of giving me the lay of the land. And let's pick it up here where we are actually w looking out a window. Um, there's a sort of like a, a 
kind of a river that, that runs through the area. And you can see it from these windows in the conference room. And we're sort of talking about that in the wildlife you can see there. It was a wintry day. We could see some deer. So let's pick it up there. Here it is, your first rounders podcast with Greg Verdine. Listen up. What's great about this place, we, we love it here, is it's in the city of Cambridge. That's Elwife Station right there. The, oh, the okay. major, All right, right. Uh, right, the tea station, the biggest tea station on this side. You can see downtown Boston over there, yeah. right? And but it, but there's 30 acres of conservation land, and there are wildlife all over the place here. There are red-tailed hawks, there are foxes, there are coyotes, there are turkeys, there are deer, there are a lot of deer. So look right there, see the deer? Look down in the Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah yes. That's a deer. They're all over the place. Wow. I'm from New Jersey, you know, like, the deer don't come out in the open in New Jersey. No. They're, somebody will shoot them. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's great. Isn't that awesome? No, there's another one over there. Oh yeah, that looks like a youngster. Wow, so this is a nice way to spend like your lunch hour. You can actually watch the wildlife. Yeah. Oh, there's some. There's one in the middle too. Yeah, there are like thirty or forty of them there, and they just they just do their thing. Let's uh, yeah. let's get into it. Okay. Um, right. So. You just mentioned something that I want to touch on. You said uh, that you were, you were born in Jersey, isn't that right? Yeah. I was born in South Jersey in the Pine Barrens. What are, what are the Pine Barrens? This the is uh, Barrens, Summers Point? It's, it's this, Summers Point is actually where I was born, but it, Summers Point is, a little, is on, on the seashore a yeah. little south of where I was born. Where I was born is a little town called Absecon, and uh, the Pine Barrens are a, an entire geographic area of sandy soil with scrub pines in it. And it has a unique culture. In fact, Anthony Bourdain did a, a segment on New Jersey, and he covered the, the Pine Barrens talking about these kind of scruffy uh, people who live there. It's not an, uh, really an intellectual area. It's, uh -huh. it's, I wouldn't call it rural, um, but I would call it um, you know, almost more like akin to Appalachia. Oh, really? It, yeah, it's um, but descended it, but, from descended from Appalachians. No, no, no. they're they're just uh, the concept. The, the, yeah, it is. It's an area that is geographically distinct. It's not agricultural. It's mainly focused on the sea. So a lot of people uh, made their livelihood from clamming uh -huh. and 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 fishing and stuff like that. Um, so it's not agrarian, but it, but it, but it's rural. So it's sort of, I mean, it's blue collar in that way. That's right. Fishermen it's, clamming. Yeah, it's yeah. it's definitely blue collar, and um, and that's true for the entire Pine Barrens area. Uh, there are areas closer to Atlantic City, which is the nearest large city, uh -huh. that have more kind of sophisticated urban. Uh, uh, folks in them. But if you look at when I was growing up, the majority of people coming through uh, high school didn't go to college. Yeah. They stayed local and you know, started um, repair shops and did clamming and, and that kind of took thing. Took over the family business, maybe if it was clamming took or something like that. Took over the family business yeah. very yeah. frequently. Yeah. In fact, I came close to taking over my father's boat building business. Oh, so I was wondering. So he was a boat builder. My father, uh, my father owned a heavy equipment operating company, so he had 
backhoes and front end loaders and those kinds of things. He didn't graduate from the ninth grade. Um, my mother, on the other hand, was uh, an LPN, a limited, what, what do you call it now, a licensed practical nurse. Uh -huh. um, so my dad started this construction company, and uh, when I was five years old, he had a tragic accident and was paralyzed. Uh, so he was in a swimming pool. He uh -huh. wrenched his neck in a swimming pool. And was one of those people that you've heard about. Dove in. He dove in and he wrenched his neck on something that was floating on, on the surface of the pool. It was poorly lit. And then he was pulled out of the pool by his arms and paralyzed from the rescue. From um, the neck down? From the neck down. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this very, you know, very, uh, would you say, physical uh, person was left without a livelihood. He went away to the hospital for a year and a half, something like that, and then came home and was really looking for something to do uh, as a quadriplegic. So he couldn't even make a, yeah. you know, grip yeah. things. Yeah. Um, and I, I have uh, three brothers, so there are four boys in, in my family. Where are you in that line? I'm third out of four. Okay. And we're all two and a half years apart, some, something like that. So I was five. I, I was a, a little around seven, a little bit less than seven. When he came home. When he came home. And um, my father then started... Um, my older brothers by that time were, you know, they, they weren't so interested in doing anything with my dad. They were, they'd kind of become almost like wild children in that time. My mother had to work. She had to keep the family together, sell off my dad's business in order to keep the family afloat. It was really... Right, so the, they're, um, they're basically unsupervised is what you're telling yeah, me. Yeah, relatively yep. unsupervised, except for when they were in school. They right. were definitely supervised when they were in school. Yeah. So, and my, my dad, uh, you know, he couldn't really supervise them either. Uh, so I was just that right age around seven. So my father, uh, started work, having me work for him. Uh, and we, the first thing that we did was we, he bought a van and we built that van into a camper and my father invented a lift system and, and I built it. He taught me how to weld. Um, so I, I built this lift system and we installed it in, in the van so that he could, and, the, and then a, a steering a system yeah. to move the accelerator pedal. Now all this is commercially available. Right. In those days, my dad had to invent it all. But you, you were, you were welding at seven? Maybe eight by yeah. then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He right. taught me how to weld. And then, uh, and my father would do other things. They're kind of like, almost like challenges to keep him busy. Yeah. So he would uh, have a, I remember he bought a Corvair, you know, Ralph, the car that Ralph Nader said was unsafe at any yeah. speed. So yeah. he bought a Corvair, had it hauled into the garage and brought me out there. And he said, you see that car out there? We're going to take the engine out of that car. We're going to take it apart. We're going to put it back together and we're going to put it back in the car. And I, I was just a kid. I, I had no idea how to do that. Um, so my dad taught me that the key to that kind of operation was taking it apart, not putting it together. How it's, you learn is taking it apart. How you take it apart is the key to putting it back together. So you have to develop a system to take it apart. So he taught me reverse engineering. Yeah. And, and reverse engineering has become so important for my scientific life. You know, most new modalities, if you think about you know, antisense or siRNA or CRISPR, antibodies, right? We don't make antibodies by immunizing a human. 
we figured out how they work by taking them apart and then we put them back together. And usually now when we put them back together, we forward engineer them, right. get them to do something new. Right. With a Corvair, you couldn't do that. But there was that same kind of logic of figuring out how something works as the key to, um, you know, to put, first of all, putting it back together and then in science, you know, making it do something new. I, so I want to go back. So for, first off, how did your parents meet? Do you know that? My mother and father met in Atlantic City. My father was five years older than my mother, uh-huh. so he was he was already working by then. Um, and my mother was in high school. She or no, maybe she had just graduated from high school. I think she was eighteen or nineteen. Uh-huh. Um, they met at a dance, and uh, you know the rest is history. And and they're they're really quite. Different people. My mother is a Catholic. My father was um, not not religious, not religious at yeah. all, um, and yet somehow they they made it work and had four kids. None of my brothers went to college. They're they're very smart. They're uh, but they're rooted in more you know in practical things. Yeah. So is your father still alive? No. Is your mother still alive? No. No. My okay. mother died of melanoma um, when she was seventy three. And my father, um, you know, quadriplegics have yeah. attenuated lifespan yeah. in general. They generally die from heart disease because they're not able to achieve enough, you know, whatever physical activity. So he died of a heart attack in uh, uh, January 1st, 2000, New Year's Day. Oh, okay. Well, then 2000. you had a most of a big chunk of your life. It's not like yeah. you passed on when you were a teenager. No, he, no, no. He wasn't, he wasn't young. But, but I have to say that... So I had this, uh, I, I had this odd situation. So my father would keep me home from school to work for him because he didn't really think that school was all that useful. Um, so my mother got wind of this uh, somehow when I was in ninth grade that my father was keeping me home from school. She, I mean, she'd come home and you'd she, act like you had been at school all day. My mother a, yeah. came home one time unwell she she got sick uh-huh. and so she came home and she discovered me working on a 42 foot chris craft that my father had brought into the yard after i graduated from the corvair to rebuilding boats with my dad so he would buy big beautiful mahogany cabin cruiser chris craft boats and we would refurbish them we'd strip down the paint we'd fix all the rotten planks we'd um, cut the transom of the boat so my dad could get in there in a wheelchair. We'd install lifts in them, and and then we'd launch the boat. So I, I spent my ch- early childhood doing that kind of work with my dad. And so my mom came home one time, and I was out working on a boat. And she said to my father, well, "What's Greg doing out working on on that boat out there?" And my father said, "Oh, he didn't feel well, so I kept him home from school." And she said, "Well." Okay, then why is he out working on a boat? Why isn't he in bed? So uh, she she figured out the scam. So it only worked once. It only worked once. And then my mother arranged for me to go live with a family friend who was the assistant principal of my high school, which was uh, about 40 miles away. Uh, I mean, because... If you didn't, you were going to keep helping your dad and not go to school? That's right. Were you, were you struggling in school at this point because no, you weren't there? You're no, still doing no. fine? No, I was doing well in school, but I, 
I didn't do any of the kinds of extracurricular things like, you know, softball yeah. after school or basketball. I was completely inept in any kind of sports. I'll never forget when I finally got to college. They, it was kind of a, I went to St. Joe's College, which was a basketball school. Yeah. So everybody had to play basketball. Yeah. My dorm was playing basketball. And I just had no idea whatsoever. But I had this amazing... <laughs> I, I'm I'm not kidding. Sometimes the other team would throw me the ball just in the hopes that I would finally hit a basket. And you mean out of sympathy? Out of sympathy, doing? yeah. <laughs> it was that bad. Uh, and but it was a it, it, so um, so anyway. I went to live with my yeah. with this family friend, and he he was an interesting guy. He was graduated from Yale and uh, was a ma- was a math teacher. At, at my high school, and I, I really learned an intellectual life. I, I had always been, I always loved to read and, um, and, and always did well in school, although I never learned how to study. Yeah. I, I just didn't. You just, you did fine on the test I, because of intelligence. You didn't have work ethics behind it. I just would do a couple of problems until I figured out what, it, what was going on, and I wouldn't yeah. do the whole homework yeah. assignment. I would just do enough to get the idea, and then, and then I would stop stop there um but but at in this experience where i went to live in it's called stone harbor it's a seashore town right right on the seashore absolutely wonderful there are maybe 30 people there in the winter time it's wow. on the shore wow, people, what yeah. people call the shore and it was um it had a kind of a solitude that i had never really known as a kid and also, you're away from your brothers now for the first time, right? I so was you, away from you my, are I mean, alone. I loved my brothers, yeah. but they were probably a little bit of a corrupting influence <clears throat> also. Um, so I could just really um, live in a different world, which was really an, an intellectual world. My, my, uh, my host would give me chores to do, and I would do my chores. We had Siberian Huskies, and we wow. bred the Siberian Huskies, which was really, really interesting. To breed dogs, mm-hmm. um, so that was a little side thing. Um, I can't believe this. I had no idea. So, um, yeah, uh, going back to your father in this accident, coming home. So your mother was a nurse. He was he couldn't have been married to a better person for this, but he must have required care. Yeah, and she was the one giving the care for this. It was so where it, when my father first came home, my mother, uh, my mother took care of him. Yeah, she was a nurse, but our family had no means of support. Yeah. So my mother, who was an absolute hero uh, of, of any story having to do with me, my mother was a hero. So she went back to school while working full time and got a bachelor's degree in nursing. I'll never forget her working all day, coming home and then Studying. staying up late. So she got a BSN degree. So my mother wasn't, you know, she was a presence, but she wasn't around a lot. And that's one reason why no one really was asking me, did you do your homework right. or, or like checking it? Maybe someone asked me, but they didn't actually You'd say yes, and they wouldn't look at him. Yeah. Right, right. So, so then I, I actually became my dad's nurse. So I got my dad in and out of bed and dressed, help him bathed. do his ba- bathing, all that, all that stuff. So from an early age, I mean, I, I didn't think there was anything, you know, when you're a kid, you just adapt to whatever yeah. the local situation is. Um, but it, but it was a, 
you know, it was an all-encompassing kind of thing. I, I, I'd work for my dad in the morning and I'd go to school and come home, work for my dad, put him to bed at night. Um, I mean, as an, as an adult, looking back at that, though, do you feel like that... What's the question I want here? Do, do you see that it might have been a, a, a large burden on a child? Uh, you know, it was definitely unusual. And uh, I think, you know, I wouldn't have wished it on my children, but... I look at that time with my dad as is something, uh, and my dad was also quite bitter, to, you know, to be honest, yeah. for understandable reasons. Yeah. Were, he he was dealt, and my mother also dealt a rough deck of cards. Um, so he was kind of a rough taskmaster in a way. I think that was the maybe the more difficult aspect of it. However, however, when I got to say so, just some. The amazing story. So I was going to go to work for my dad at the end of high school. That yeah. was always the intention to go back and work for my dad. I never intended to go to college. But I went to a Catholic high school and we had to take the SAT in order to graduate. You had to get a thousand on the SAT to graduate to graduate. Mm -hmm. So now it's not uncommon in Massachusetts and other states that there are minimal uh, requirements in, in a standardized test. But it was unheard of then. So we had to take the SAT. So for the, I wasn't planning on going to college, but I took the SAT and I did quite well. At that point, my the person, my high school guidance counselor, who was supposed to have been paying attention to me, I was off the radar screen. I just was off the. I, I wasn't this. taking AP classes. I wasn't doing any any of that. I wasn't doing anything after school. So he all of a sudden said, "Oh my God, I've just you know this guy. He should really be going to college." I can see if he he gets the scores and he says, "Who's Greg?" Yeah, He's kind of like, like that. It turned out he was my history teacher, so he knew who I was. He he I, he might have noticed that I, but but I but I wasn't that great of a student. Yeah. Um, classically, um, I was mechanically un, unbelievable. Um, so anyway, he contacted St. Joe's College, apparently a friend that he had there and arranged for my materials to be sent there, unbeknownst to me. Your scores. No essay, my scores. Yeah. And, no essay. Uh, no essay, no. And, and they, uh, they accepted me. And they sent me a letter uh, in, in the mail um, that said, you've been accepted to, to St. Joe's College. Um, and I, then, I mean, and were you I'd, thinking I didn't even apply? I, Did you know that the I, guidance counselor had done it? As far as I recall, I, I had no, I didn't know anything about it. So wow. I thought, wow, this is really a mistake, and I, I'm not quite sure what you know what to do here. But I, I, so I procrastinated in doing anything about it. I, um, you mean like accepting? Well, I certainly wasn't about to accept because I was sure it was a mistake. Yeah. That, that somehow my name had gotten mixed up or whatever. I didn't know anything about it. So, but then I got a le another letter from a, a judge in Atlantic City who was offering to pay for my full tuition um, because the, apparently my gui guidance counselor also lined up a donor to pay because my family couldn't afford to pay for it. So then I realized, okay, this is real and got in contact with St. Joe's and went to talk to him to say what's going on and learned of this conspiracy to get me to college. So I, I went to college. I decided to go to college for that reason. And I wasn't sure what you do in college. Um, so I, when they, so I, 
did, did some nondescript kind of ling- English major um, track. Can I, went, I can I ask you one yeah. thing before when when you told your father you're going to college, he, he was, was he very upset. Yeah, so my father didn't speak to me for a couple of years after that. He was he felt very betrayed. Yeah. Um, and but then what happened was really cool. By that time, he had started working with my younger brother, who turned out to be useless or useful. <laughs> I'm sorry, he turned out to be useful. My older brother, wonderful, were you know they weren't they weren't interested in yeah. doing that kind. But of thing. But the youngest one said, "I'll he, I'll take over the business if Greg's he, not going to do came it." Came along and 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 picked up you know where where I left off with my dad. So eventually things got smoothed out. Um, my, you have to remember, this was around the time of the Vietnam War. Yeah. So my father thought people go to college and he'd see them on TV and, oh, that's what they do. They protest yep. and they smoke dope. And they, yep. you know, so to him, he couldn't, he, he thought it was avoiding real life. Um, so uh, anyway, I went to college, went to St. Joe's and, and was mainly focused on English literature and I found it to be very frustrating that there was there was no room for creativity. Every 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 angle on Huckleberry Finn had already been explored by somebody, and yep. so you had to make something up to yep. get it. But but I but I loved the Jesuits at St. Joe's. They were really interesting. They were totally subversive. They were very philosophical. They were much more liberal than the students from Philadelphia who were going to St. Joe's. So the Jesuits really, um, they, uh, they really ignited my intellectual life in a way. Um, and when I was in high school, I took uh, chemistry. Yeah. And I think maybe everybody had to take chemistry. And I liked chemistry in high school. So I was the only English major who took chemistry. You just took uh, it as an elective outside of your as major. As an elective, that's yeah. right. And um, and I did, when I got to the lab, I had this unbelievable organic chemistry teacher named George Nelson, whose own PhD work is in every organic chemistry textbook. It's a whole other story how he ended up at St. Joe's, but he could have been at Harvard, Columbia, Berkeley, Caltech, Stanford, you name anywhere. it, MIT. Yep. He could yep. have been anywhere. He was a master of the universe and somehow ended up at St. Joe's, um, Midwestern farm boy. And he, when he saw me in the lab, he, he zeroed in on me and said, this guy is just unbelievably good in the lab. It's ironic that a lot of people who end up in academics as professors get there because they're preternaturally good in the lab. Yeah. And the first thing you do is you get out of the lab Right. when, when you go into academics. Right. So anyway, um, I, I, so I, uh, this guy zeroed in on me and asked me if I would come and, and spend some time working in his lab. And I didn't know it at the time, but he gave me his job. He had me start doing what he had always done until that time. He had one job left in the lab. It was doing column chromatography. Uh-huh. And what he did was trained me to do his job. And then he stopped doing it. And did he retire? No. He just did something got else. out of the lab. Yeah. You know, he yeah. wrote grants. And, all that. and at St. Joe's, this, this, um, he had a large uh, grant, a couple million dollars a year at an undergraduate institution. I, I had no idea how unusual 
this is. Uh, but 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 anyway, I took over his job, and that got got me in his lab immediate street cred, and people treated me so unbelievably with so much respect, and uh, that launched my career in chemistry. Was just that simple. Then I switched. So you, from English yeah. to you to, didn't get an English degree. You got a chemistry. degree, I ended up right? getting a chemistry degree H happily. I mean, was happily. This I stayed a fifth year so th so that I could make up for the courses that I hadn't had, and I turned my grades around too because I like I found what I really should be doing. Ah. So in the lab, I was getting an A. In the lecture, I was getting a C plus because I didn't know how to study. Or in organic chemistry, you really have to know how to study. Getting yeah. behind is really deadly. Yeah. It's not like the course is all that difficult, really, but getting behind is really problematic. So anyway, I, I ended up doing quite well. I, I took a fifth year, and then um, George Nelson, my advisor, took me to ask me if I would go with him to Princeton to meet someone. Um, and he drove me up to Princeton, and he got an hour in the schedule of Koji Nakanishi from Columbia, uh -huh. who was visiting Princeton that day. And so I spent an hour meeting Koji Nakanishi, and I decided, okay, I'm going to Columbia for graduate school. And, and did he, he felt the same? I think he felt the same because George Nelson told him that you should, you really have to take this guy. Yeah, he's a little unusual. He's maybe you're a little rough around the edges, but he's unbelievable in the yeah. lab. Uh, so I, I then uh, went to Columbia and um, I had to give some credit too to my, my roommate at St. Joe's had also gone to, he's a year ahead of me. His name is Tim Cook. And uh, Tim went to Columbia a year ahead of me and worked for Ron Breslow at Columbia. Uh -huh. And so, in a way, I, I was also following Tim a, a little bit. Yeah, you was, could see the pathway a little bit. You could bit. see the yeah. pathway, and yeah. I, because I was clueless. I had no idea how you navigate any of this stuff. Um, I mean, go, going from the, the, the Pine Barrens, as you say, to Philly must have been a pretty big jolt. And it, then to go, out, to go to New York must have been... You know, so, another. so so each one of those was totally a move in a direction that felt really great and exciting to me. Um, going from the Pine Barrens to Stone Harbor was was a, a, a dramatic cultural shift um, from you know being embedded in, in in my family to being kind of really effectively on my own. Yeah. Um, which, which was really interesting, and it worked out very well for me. Um, then when I went to Philadelphia, it was my first time in a city. Yeah, and that, but I was in the cloistered environment yeah. of, of, of the university. Then when I went to Columbia, that was really uh, a cultural shift because I lived in a high-rise building, a fifth-floor walk-up with no elevator, with five roommates. Yeah. And they turned out to be great, and they also shepherded me. When I, <laughs> when I started at Columbia, we had to take quantum mechanics. Uh -huh. And um, I, was, I just was never very good at math, unfortunately. I was really good at practical things. I was really good at geometry. Yeah, but, you would think, uh, given you your history, You could imagine history, I was right? good at yeah. geometry. Yeah. So I was really good at geometry. But advanced calculus and, and vector mathematics and all those kinds of things, I was not very good at. So when I got to Columbia, um, I, I had to take uh, quantum mechanics in, in my first year. 
And I'll never forget how, um, and there's these bunch of organic chemists, and most of them had come from, I never forget, they came from MIT and Harvard and Duke, and they all knew how to do math. And I was just functionally illiterate in advanced math, and all of a sudden in quantum mechanics. So I'll never forget, they saved me, they rescued me, my my classmate, one of them is Alana Shepards, who's now at, at Berkeley. Yeah, she was in, in my class um, at, at, at Columbia. And this whole group of people banded together and said, we have to help Greg just, just get through this course uh, so, so that he can make it. Why do you think they did that? They just uh, liked you? You know what? Columbia at that time was extraordinarily collegial. It came from the faculty. Gilbert Stork, Ron Breslow, Koji Nakanishi, Nick Turo. The whole institutional ethos there was so collegial that the students um, felt it, and they 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 modeled themselves in their behavior after the behavior of the faculty. That's nice. It's an extraordinary group of people. Yeah. Okay. So they they helped you out and, and uh... they got me through. And then 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 you know after you get the organic chemistry courses, I I did fine. I did well, and I learned at that time that at that point grades don't matter. You just have to pass, yeah. which I've told many graduate students since then. You will make your destiny in the lab. Huh. And so make sure you learn enough to be functional in the lab and to know what you're doing and learn the basics. But don't fixate on grades. Fixate on learning. But don't the grades sometimes allow you, I mean, especially going from like undergrad to graduate school, the grades are really going to be looked at. Unless, unless you just have someone from your lab saying, as happened to you, you should take this person because they're really good in the lab. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think in graduate school, um, really grades don't matter that don't, much. Don't yeah. matter at all. There are some faculty members who who put a lot of stock in them, but if you look at, like, for example, me, a guy coming from St. Joe's, there, you know, I shouldn't uh, kill myself to get an A. I should. What matters is the delta, the learning curve, the right. trajectory right. of your intellectual growth and my trajectory was whopping yeah um and so I, I i've told a lot of students since then to you know don't uh don't be disrespectful so in other words when you're taking a course if you just blow it off that's disrespectful it's disrespectful to you and it's disrespectful to the professors and the classmates frankly and, and, yeah. and your classmates so don't be disrespectful but at the same time don't obsess on your grade in the course. Obsess on learning what you feel you need to learn um, to be effective. Let's take a step back. The first thing that happened is when I, when I was a graduate student with Nakanishi, I worked out the mechanism by which uh, the, a clinically used anti-cancer drug, mitomycin C, how it um, interacts with DNA. Uh -huh. It turns out that it cross-links the two strands of DNA. Um, and with Maria Tomas at Hunter College, I worked, uh, you know, I worked out, uh, isolated the cross-link adducts and solved their structures. And then it was around that time that Clark Still had, had, had um, who before that had been a synthetic chemist, but he developed this modeling program called Macromodel. And so I did the first example of modeling what that DNA adduct looked like embedded in DNA and, and, and then published that paper in science. Um, so I 
I became I, I would that work was very noteworthy at the time. The combination of you know really stru isolation, structure-based design, solving a problem of why this is an anti-cancer drug. Well, it doesn't allow the strands of DNA to separate, and then get putting a molecular face on it. I was just doing what I love to do. I didn't have any grand plan or anything, but I got a call from Harvard. Basically, Ko uh, uh, Yoshi Kishi from Harvard called Koji Nakanishi when I was a third-year graduate student and said, do you have anyone? We have a junior faculty position. Oh, that's how it happened. Available. Oh. And at that time, you know, no junior faculty member would consider going to Harvard because no one got tenure. The last per When I started at Harvard, the last organic chemist to get tenure from inside was R.B. Woodward, 44 years earlier. So everyone looked at that job as being, you know, not really a very attractive junior faculty job. So anyway, I thought, my God, I was too scared of Harvard to even apply as a graduate student. I just applied to Columbia. I didn't apply anywhere else. Yeah. So I went up, so I got a call from Yoshi, and he said, look, we have a job here. Would you, could you put together some proposals and send us in an application? So I threw together a couple of proposals and um, applied for a faculty job at Harvard when I was a third-year graduate student. And I got a phone call from, I think by that time it was Dave Evans, saying, would you come up and interview with us? We're interested in what you're doing. And I was doing things that had nothing really to do with chemistry. It was like understanding how enzymes do reactions on DNA. Yep. That was my early career was understanding how, how enzymes methylate DNA. But you could see the connection to mitomycin right. in a right. way, right? It's right. taking it to the next step. Okay, how does an enzyme do this? But that was on the fringe of chemistry at the time. It was really the beginnings of chemical biology. Um, so anyway, I went, up, I went up to Columbia. I was scared to death. I mean, just scared <laughs> scared to death. And I think it showed. Um, so I went through this interview. I mean, were you, you know, were you like, what do I wear? How do I all shake hands? All, all those things, yeah. right? This and, is Harvard. And, and you, you know what I did? Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you. So anyway, I asked around and said, like, how do you interview? What do you do? But I, I just was clueless. I'm, I'm a piney, you know. <laughs> oh, that's the term for someone from the pine barrens. Yeah, a piney. A okay. piney. And uh, so I, but I thought, why not? I have nothing to lose. I, you know, I'm st still a graduate student. Yep. I, yep. Um, so, so I went and did this interview, and and I had a, I had a really wonderful time. I really liked the people. They treated me extremely well. And Dave Evans drove me back to my hotel after the interview. And we talked a little bit. And, and he, you know, he said to me, you, you know, we, we think the world of you. You've done amazing work. We think you have really great ideas. But you seem like you're not quite ready. How do you feel about that? I said, you know, at the end of this day, I tell you, I don't feel like I'm ready. And I already had a postdoc lined up with Chris Walsh. So I said, I'd like to go and do my postdoc. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So what they said is, we want to keep in touch with you. Uh, Smart. So, um, and, and so, so, so they did. It was very fascinating the way they kept in touch with me. So Yoshi Kishi would call my lab at MIT and then Harvard Medical School every month. He must have had it on his calendar. Once a month, he would call me and say, how are you doing? Are what you are ready you doing? yet? What oh, are really? you doing? How are you feeling about Harvard? And he just, every month, and, and people were t- intimidated by him because he had a reputation of being this intellectual giant. Everyone was a little scared of Harvard. So they would like they knew around the time that he called every month and people wouldn't answer the phone because they were nervous about getting Kishi's call. But that, so they left it up to you to decide when you were ready. They hadn't made me a formal offer, but they made it really clear that they were interested in me. Uh, so at some point, he called and you said, I'm, I'm ready. And then what happened is that um, there, the, the, the next year, after about a year working for Chris, um, they took, had an excess of graduate students in biological chemistry. And Jeremy Knowles was my wonderful, wonderful colleague. He couldn't take all of them. So there were four stranded graduate students who looked amazing. Uh-huh. And they, those graduate students started coming over to visit me in my lab at Harvard. By that time, Chris had moved, Chris Walsh had moved from MIT to Harvard Medical School. They started visiting me in my lab and saying, hey, would you could you join Harvard so that we'll have a lab to join? Well, you know, I four graduate students starting your academic career. So I so I talked with Harvard and and they they were excited to you know to make an offer. I think I went back and re-interviewed formally. Um, and by that time, I'd grown up. Yeah, you know, that year was a really big year, pivotal yeah. year uh, for me, and and so. Um, so then I got an, an offer from Harvard in uh, December 1st, 1987, and I went to Chris. I went to two people. I went to Chris and said, hey, Chris, I, I have this offer from Harvard. Chris said to me, you have to take it. Yeah. Even though I was in his lab only a year, he said, you must take that job. Uh, and you know, I said, Chris, I'm not done what I promised you. He said, well why don't you just finish up the stuff for me while you're over at Harvard? You can train your graduate students. So my first period at Harvard, I was actually finishing up Chris Walsh's project while I 
spooled up my own research effort with my own graduate students. Those four graduate students. Those four yeah. graduates, all four yeah. of them joined my lab. Wow. So you started your lab already with four under your belt and you sort of hit the, hit the ground running in a way. Hit the ground with my feet running, exactly. Wow. And, and that's how I ended up uh, at Harvard. And I started working on DNA repair of... Uh, Repair of of of, uh, of aberrantly modified DNA by uh, oxidizing agents and methylating agents, and and working out the mechanism of uh, epigenetic methylation uh -huh. of DNA, which is eventually, I I ended up succeeding in both of those. I figured out uh, how enzymes repair aberrantly methylated DNA uh, and aberrantly oxidized DNA, and I figured out how epigenetic methyltransferases transfer methyl groups to DNA. Um, I want Not to I. I, I no, should really say my lab yeah, and yeah, I, we. Yeah, yeah. Forgive me. You're forgiven. Yeah. Um, but so I want to talk about how you go from this, this researcher, really, into the translational side of things. And you right. know that goes from all the startups you've been associated with. And somewhere in there, you're also part of Third Rock. And I don't really know if it was yeah. you know, which way you came at that. Well, um, the way the way this all happened is my second year at Harvard, um, uh, George Whitesides approached me and said, "There's a consulting job that's available um, at Merck, and I really can't. I don't have the bandwidth to take it on. So um, they'd be interested if you could take it on to give you a try." Uh, and at that point, Merck was at the pinnacle of their power, yeah. right? That was the plum consulting job yeah. uh, in in the industry. And uh, so I said, sure, I'll, I'll give that a try. I could augment my salary a little bit. At that time, it would have been unthinkable for an assistant professor to start a company. You would, there's no way you would get promoted. So this is... 1990 it would know that would have been you know 88 or 88 89, okay somewhere around there uh and so it, that you would have been viewed as being not serious enough about yeah. your academic career people look at it differently now they yeah. recognize the that having this other portion to your life is often good for your creativity uh in the lab anyway i went and did that consulting job at merck for a year and learned a lot from merck and then uh, Manfred Weigele from uh, Roche um, plucked me, stole me from, uh, from, from, from Merck, and I, I moved to Roche. And I, as a consultant? As a consultant. And I, and I gradually started spending more and more and more time uh, at Roche as a consultant to where I ended up spending 30 days a year. Oh. And, and uh, Roche was a really interesting company at that time. They would try any new technology. They're incredibly adventurous. They had really strong science, but they would get cold feet. They were working on protein-protein interactions way before anyone else. They were using NMR screening way before anyone else. They were doing high-throughput screening and, and, and uh, using robotic high, before anyone else. But in a lot of those areas, they would eventually lose their nerve and so i saw that and then i but what do you mean by that you mean they would not they would not start a trial they would not they would take a molecule out of they there. would what take you... the technology to a certain point where it got difficult and then they just then, sort of give up then on it they would say hi huh, well this looks like it's going to be difficult okay. and then they would back back out yep. of it at that time um i i couldn't say now but i noticed that and thinking wow you know 
it seemed to me like they gave up just a little bit too early in a lot of these things. And then I also learned this thing called about drug ability. And um, I learned that they binned certain targets and just say, those are undruggable. You know, we, we tried. They'd taken a large number of these targets and screened them through million-member compound screens and just got nothing. Mm-hmm. So this was emerging picture of druggable versus undruggable targets and and, and I, I it always struck me as being odd like why should those be undruggable undruggable yep. it seems like that's just like a some kind of a functional definition but it became a kind of religion and so i i i really i thought okay it's, it's someone from academics is going to have to take on this problem be solve it and so i started um thinking about it a bit and and eventually a a really uh terrific postdoc came to my lab whose name is Chris Schaffmeister. He's at Temple now. And Chris had come from Bob Stroud's lab at UCSF, and he was in a way like a protein designer. So we thought, okay, let's begin um, applying some of the principles of protein design, because we know proteins can recognize these undruggable targets, so anybody's can recognize them. So can you strip a protein down to its bare minimum? What is the bare essence of a folded protein, and that seemed to be an alpha helix. So Chris and I started working at Harvard at that time on um, coming up with a way to stabilize them as a way of hitting these undruggable targets. Um, What happened in my entrepreneurial life is Roche eventually decided to reorganize all of their consultants, and um, I, I thought, you know, maybe now would be a good time to go off and you know capitalize on everything that Roche had taught me. Yep. Um, to be fair to them, they taught me a lot. Um, and so I started my first company at that time, which Ananta. is Ananta. Yeah. And you know, Ananta has become a very successful uh, company now with you know, three clinically approved products and m- many more uh, on the way, curing patients of HCV. Um, so that was the first company that I that I started, and then you know after that I I I started looking at how that world works, the academic entrepreneur, and I teamed up with Apple Tree Partners, and with Apple Tree Partners I founded Gloucester Pharmaceuticals, and we got a drug approved by the FDA, no, um, romidepsin. But when you're, as, you're founding these as sort of like the founding... As an academician. So not, but you're not running it, you're just no, sort of like you've added anything. your IP sort of to this company. Yeah, I added my IP. In the, in the case of uh, Gloucester Pharmaceuticals, I, I had discovered that there was a cancer drug that was being neglected and... Uh, I knew this. the The company that owned it was Fujizawa, uh-huh. and I cloned the FK five hundred six binding protein in my early days at Harvard with Stuart. I taught Stuart Schreiber and his lab how to clone, and so I had cloned the FK five hundred six binding protein. That was the target of Fujizawa's drug. Yep. So I knew the CEO of Fujizawa. They owned this drug, Romidepsin. So I approached them and said, "I want to buy your drug." And I wrapped a company around it. I did that with, with Apple Tree, and then also founded um, Tokai, which is yep. another licensing 
company, and then Aileron, which was the first one that licensed technology um, from my lab. And around 2000, I, I started talking, uh, using this phrase saying, drugging the undruggable. That was our mantra. We're going to drug the undruggable. Most people did, weren't even aware of the problem of undruggable targets, that 85% of all human proteins are undruggable. Is that, is that what the, those are the, the literature is telling numbers. you, that 85% so of... So the way to think about it is that 10%, give or take, of human proteins are extracellular. Uh -huh. Most of those are druggable by yep. antibodies, yep. right? So they're not the problem. And then about 5% of human proteins, somewhere around there, you know, who knows, it could end up being 10%, it could, but historically about 5%. What, uh, surface proteins? Or, or, no, are, are intracellular. Uh -huh. so, it, so, so, there, the, so the current numbers are that these estimates are somewhere around 15% of all human proteins are targetable by either monoclonal antibodies and, and small molecules. And uh, so I started, you know, really um, talking about this extensively. And, and now the it's, people routinely talk about drugging the undruggable. There are probably 50 companies that, yeah. that have that as their mantra, which is great. Um, and I, I feel some amount of fatherly pride. Yeah. Every for, time you hear it, you, you yeah, feel that way? Yeah. Not, not just the phrase, but the uh, moving our emphasis to figuring out how to bridge the gap between our knowledge of biology and actionability. That's really what's important. Yeah. Is saying, no, we can't just write off those targets anymore. Uh, we, we need to learn how to go after them. Yeah. So, so that became my life's mission. Uh, eventually, and that's why I'm here today. Yeah. Third Rock eventually came to me. Mark Levin and, and the partners at Third Rock came to me and asked me, would I become an advisor to them, along with Eric Lander and Bob Langer and Charles Holmesy. We were their kind of brain trust. Uh -huh. They called it their trust. And after a year of that, uh, doing that, then uh, the partnership asked me and asked Charles Holmesy if we would become venture partners. So at that point, I became a venture partner at Third Rock. So that was just Mecca and probably still is today. They had a whole process for starting companies that was systematic and thoughtful. For some people, it was a little too deliberative, but I, I think what they recognized that so many biotech companies got started and they spent the first year figuring out what they were going to do. So in the third rock model, you figure that all out before you actually launch the company. So, yeah. And you pressure test it. And yeah. sometimes that took two years. Sometimes it took three years. Sometimes it took four years. So we started 11 bio and, and warp drive yep. um, bio. And um, Well, let's talk about warp drive because I, yeah. I find this fascinating, right? So yeah. I, you know, I remember some of these things. And warp drive... Was incubated at Third Rock for I think two years. Yeah, pressure tested more, more as you closer said. Closer to four years. Whoa. Okay. So four <laughs> years they're in this stealth mode. Yeah. You know they think they want to start this company. Nobody knows about it. And then they're yeah. launched with like I think 125 million dollars Series right. A round. Yeah. Which was also at the time new, right? It was the biggest Series A at that at that time yeah. for a company that didn't have an asset under development. Exactly. It was right. An so idea company. It was an idea right. company. It had this great brain trust behind it. Now they had all the money in the world it looked like to yes. take this thing forward. Yeah. And it, it really did shake up venture capital investing. I, I mean, I, 
you know, th- the third rock model you just used, that, that became... That was the biggest financing they had done for a Series yeah, and A. And it became the way that yeah. companies are made almost now. Yeah. If, if the company yeah. has been pressure treated in that way, yeah. 50, 60, 70 million is not uncommon. It's, that's right. And yeah. it certainly and was... north of 100. Exactly. At that time, it was... I mean, before that, you know, I remember when Ariad did a $45 million Series A, and that, that, that was, seemed huge. It was really yeah. huge. So, um, but they did one other thing that was so interesting yeah. to me is, good Lord, look at all that money. And it's yeah. been stealth mode, I thought, for two years. You're telling me four. And it had Sanofi built in there as a first option to buy the company. That's correct. And you're yeah. thinking, okay, so now the ties between pharma and biotech are getting really tight. Yeah. And, it, you know, the, the dream used to be sort of, well, I'm going to start a company. It's going to become this FIPCO one day, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And, and that, like those sorts of deals took that lie away. It was almost like, well, we're building companies for pharma to buy them. Yeah. And the whole model sort of changed around that too. Yeah. And MPM has really formalized that process of, and to some extent Atlas, but yeah. MPM in particular has a really formal process where now build to buy, where they, they work together with a company to, to, to build it up and, and, and sell it. To yeah. The dream wasn't some IPO one day. And yeah. Then, yeah. It, it totally right. changed. So were, were you part of those negotiations? So the way Warp Drive came about is um, it really was focused on undruggable targets. So at that point, all I wanted to do was undruggable targets. And so I went out and asked the question, okay, is there any example of a small molecule that can drug a flat target, Uh a topologically flat target? There were three companies or three, sorry, there were three compounds that that were known to drug a flat target. Those are cyclosporin, FK506, mm-hmm. and rapamycin. They're natural products, and all three of them work the same way. They don't bind the target on their own. The, the drug actually binds a protein inside of the cell, combines together with it, is integrated into its surface, so they form a composite surface, and that composite surface targets the target. So what was really interesting about that is I so wow, that's, oh my God, here is a modality that allows small molecules to drug an undruggable target. Light bulb goes off. Right. I thought, there must be more of these. Yeah. There must be more of them. Nature never does that thing once because this is so enabling. So so the big idea, we kept this secret for five years at Warp Drive. It's an amazing story. But I had this big idea that there are more of them out there and we could search for them by genomic sequencing. So Warp Drive was started to do that. We raised $125 million to go out sequence bacteria, and search for new members of the FK506 and rapamycin family. We're just on, on, finally, after years and years and years, we kept this very secret. We found a whole slew of new ones, yep. and they all drug on druggable targets. I had to go back to Harvard after running. You were on sabbatical. I was on sabbatical yeah. for yep. two years, and, I, and I, in 2015, I had to go back to Harvard. I, I was... Um, I was on loan effectively to, to, to Warp Drive. So Lawrence Reed came in to run the company. Um, so let me, let me ask you, because you mentioned that you were on this two-year sabbatical to do yeah. uh, Warp Drive. Um, so with Fog Pharma now, right? Yes. I, I think the question is, were you, were you almost disappointed to go back to Harvard and leave Warp Drive? Because with Fog Pharma, and tell me where I'm wrong, 
you've retired from teaching to run Fog Pharma full-time. So when I went back to Harvard, I approached Harvard and said, you know, this time I'd like to do it differently. I would really like to, I've, I've, I've trained myself now, Warp Drive, I actually ran the company for a couple of years. I made a lot of mistakes, but I, but I, I learned how to, 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 what I mean is in the transition from a professor to a CEO, a CEO, yeah. you know, I had to, I had to learn that, you know, you know teamwork is really important. No, these people with PhDs are not postdocs yep. and had to really uh, learn how to be effective at, as a CEO, as and a I, leader, I, as a leader. Yeah. And, and in academics, we frequently value the fact that you push people off the cliff and say, you figure out how to fly. Um, but in a company, you, you can't run a company that way. So I, I love the teamwork aspect of it. I really did. And, and I, I bit the bug. Went back to Harvard and thought, okay, there's only going to be one way to make this really stick. With a lot of companies and technologies, the second time around is the charm. Think about you know, how many different areas the second time around oh, sure. is yeah. the charm. So I thought, I, I really need to take more responsibility for this this time. So together with David Scadden and Doug Melton, my co-chairs, in stem cell and regenerative biology. By that time, I had moved uh, my department to stem cell and regenerative biology. Um, I approached them and said, you know, I'd really like to uh, find a way to run uh, Fog Pharma and take this Harvard technology, spin it out, um, and I'm happy to continue teaching and so on. Uh, and so they helped create a path for the first time ever in the history of Harvard for a tenured professor to continue being a tenured professor, um, but to also run a company. And that, uh, this is the first time. It's the first time, to my knowledge, wow. and I'm pretty sure that. that that's the case. Yeah. And, and, and the way that Harvard made that work is, is they said, okay, then um, we will requ require you to agree to retire in, in three years. And I also agreed not to take any more graduate students or postdocs. That that wouldn't have been, even while I was at Warp Drive, I... That would have been it not, it, it wouldn't have been it fair to been, them. It wouldn't have been yeah. fair to the postdocs or the graduate yeah. students. Yeah. Um, and, and so eventually that was approved by Harvard. But by the time Harvard approved it, I had also started LifeMind. And uh, so that this deal ultimately allowed me to run two companies uh, and not just one. You know, I think it says something, as we talked about, you know, you were saying earlier in the 80s, if someone was starting a company, it would have been unheard of. Yeah. You know, that's a full spectrum we've come now. Now they're saying, yeah. okay, we're willing to really do something we've never done before because we understand how important companies are to the research community, not only of Cambridge, but just in general, right? I mean, research has really gotten more and more translational over the past three decades or so. That's that, that's for sure. And now it's not at all uncommon for assistant professors to be starting companies. companies and yeah. and it, it's all a question of management and balance. I think it can be really, really positive for them. And it can actually be really, really, really positive for the people in your lab, too. Um, in my case, I've had this I've had this extraordinary opportunity to start as a pure academician doing purely curiosity-driven research and then moving into more translational research and then becoming a venture partner and then and then 
uh, if you want to call it an investor, first I was a company founder, and then I became a founder investor, also helping venture groups look at other potential investments. And then I I finally transitioned and closed that by going out and actually running these companies. And that whole arc has been really... It's been. It's allowed me to stay fresh and to stay excited about science. What Fog Pharma is doing, for example, we want to get to universal drugability. We want to get to where, in principle, every single human protein is druggable. Huge. Huge. And and uh, that's going to require a, 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 an effort that integrates. Uh, directed evolution to discover these uh, starting molecules, synthetic chemistry, optimization, AI to train on learning uh, how to get these things into cells, translational science, information science. It's this big, big multi-parameter integration across big swaths of science. And you can only do that in a startup. You can't do it in big pharma, I think, effectively. You can't do it in academics. So this, I mean, if you retire from teaching in, what, two or three years now? I did retire. You, did, you already did. Oh, so okay. I taught my last class uh, at, at the end of June, and it was really bittersweet. I have to say, after I taught this last class, I started entertaining the idea that maybe I should give it again at some time in the future, and my colleagues would really love me to do that. Yeah. I need to take a few years and yeah. really devote myself fully. But this is it. I mean, you could be Fog Pharma until you don't want to work anymore. That's right. Yeah. And, and Life Mine. Yeah. So, like, right. I'm so, sorry. Yeah. So, uh, you know, along the way, we decided that, that uh, a genome mine. So I have a co founder in both companies who's Wei Ching Zhou. Uh, she's our COO here uh-huh. in both Fog and Life Mine. So I had this incredible partnership of a, a business, someone who could help to you know, run the business on the operation side so that I could really focus on you know, overall management, vision, and, and the science as well. Um, I want to ask, I want to go back to your family for yeah. one second because I'm yeah. curious about this. Number one, is your brother still running the family business? Well, it, it, it never, my, my father's business was kind of an, an informal business right. anyway. Uh, so, so, well, no, my brothers eventually, all three of them went off to be uh, to work for the electric company. So they're linemen and dispatchers and uh, down in New Jersey still. Two of them are in South Jersey in the Pine Barrens, uh-huh. and, and one of them lives in New Hampshire. So the the two that were older than you that were unsupervised for a while. Yeah, I mean, did they turn out all right? You know, none of them ever got arrested. There you go. <laughs> And they're, uh, they, they've all built, you know, terrific families. Yeah. And they, they're, um, you know, basically, yeah, not, not, they all turned out to be really great people. Are you and guys close? We are, yeah, we're close. Uh, Do they know, look at you I, as this incredible they, outlier? Well, I, I think the way they look at me, and I, my, my daughter got married recently, and so I had a chance to get together with my brothers at my daughter's wedding. I don't see them that much because I, I work like yeah. a maniac, yeah. and, and they live you know, fairly far away from me. But when, whenever we see each other, it's like we're right back in the scrum. 
Um, so they, they told me for the first time, I never realized this. They, they said that, that, that I, that my mother had always, uh, shown favoritism toward me. Now I object to this completely. I don't, I don't believe this is true, but, but they, they argue it very strongly. So they're saying your success is dependent upon your mother's favoritism like that. They're saying that, that mom always, like you, know, you best. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the right way to put it is, but like I was my mother's pet. Yeah. And and I know why now. So, in Catholic families, um, we often have the children have god godparents, yeah. a godmother or a godfather. So I I have a godfather, and my godfather is my mother's brother. Uh-huh. His name is Larry Delaney. And he ended up getting a PhD in chemical engineering. And my mother and my her brother are very, very close. So I was his god am his godson. And I think my mother decided that like by some odd transmission of godfather to godson that I was going to go off and not get a PhD, but I think she she thought I was going to get an MD. And I think in an odd way, I think because of that godfather relationship that my mother decided that somehow I was the one who was kind of ordained to go off and and have an academic career like her brother my godfather she was right i had a wonderful thing really recently my 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 godfather and my uncle who who i love dearly uh and his wife i'm very close with them he uh he has been uh the head of the board of overseers board of directors, I guess, for Clarkson University. Uh-huh. And um, I was recently given an honorary degree by Clark- at the last graduation by Clarkson University. So I had a, an opportunity to sit there at graduation with my uncle and to tell a story about our grandfather, about my grandfather and my uncle's father, and, and to thank my uncle for his... Um, you know, for his being there throughout my childhood and yeah. being an influence on yeah. me, which was really, um, you know, rarely do you get the opportunity to, to thank one of the angels in your life. And publicly, too. I mean, publicly. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, th- I think this is the last thing I want to ask you, but okay. I'm going to try to almost reverse engineer you on this one. But <laughs> if, if your father um, was telling you that you know school wasn't important. What was important was learning this trade. Almost, you're going to help me with my business, and and then you went on to kind of you, you tell your students that it isn't so important that you get the A. It's important right. that you learn in the lab. Like, it's do you sort of treat all your research almost as as a trade? Okay, so I, the the answer to that is yes, and I'll tell you how far I've taken it. So I decided that um, there are many um, areas of science that are trades. And they're, in many ways, they're not. If you're running a DNA sequencer, that requires a high level of technical expertise. You can't be a distracted PhD scientist. You need to be a highly trained, highly observational. You need to know every noise that machine makes and whether it's the right thing or the wrong wrong thing. You need to own it. And that's not that different in my mind from being an Irish plasterer. You know, in Boston, all of the people who skim coat houses who Mm -hmm. do plastering 
they, a lot of them are Irish. A lot of them underwent four, six years of training in Ireland in the trade. And then they ended up here in Boston. And they'll come in and they will plaster the entire interior of your house in two days. And it will be a work of art. They're extraordinarily skilled um, and they're knowledgeable. And so I, so a lot of science has that same element. And we have, I think, over-educated many people. And we've, under, we've under-appreciated how important trade skills are in doing science. So let me tell you what I decided to do in recognition of that. I've fallen in love with a little town north of here called Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is, yeah. is a fishing town. Yeah. And I saw what was going on is that by result of the depletion of the of the fish stocks, that a lot of people who had bought boats were losing their boats, uh, and that there was nothing. That, you know, the catch limits were going down, and everyone was focused on the parents and helping, trying to save them, and no one was focused on the kids. And I looked at those kids, and and I thought, well, they're kind of like me. They're they're. They're, they've worked with their parents since they were little. They often worked on, on their boats. They, they have a strong work ethic. They have good observational skills. And so there's an, an untapped group of really, potentially really valuable people there. And they, they've been left out to dry by circumstance. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do was to start a nonprofit um, that's called Gloucester Biotechnology Academy. And I recruited David Walt, the founder of Illumina, who's now, now at Harvard uh, Medical School, a very prominent uh, scientist, entrepreneur, and also Mark Vidal, who's at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. The three of us teamed up, and we, uh, we, we got the Gloucester Biotechnology Academy up and running. And, and I start, we started alongside um, Gloucester Marine Genomics Institute, with the idea that, okay, if we're going to train these high school graduates to do technical jobs, we, there's no industry in Gloucester yet. We have to try to create a place for some of them to get a job. And as of this date, the Institute, the Academy has already graduated on the order of 55 high school graduates. And so a long-winded answer to your question is, Yes, I believe a lot of the sciences are, in fact, trades and should be looked at as trades and that the people who are doing those jobs should have the respect that a tradesman has who's at the top of their craft yeah. and they should be paid appropriately. I can't thank you enough. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Good talk. Thank you. Thank you. That is the end of it. The end of the first Rounders podcast with Greg Verdine. I've been trying to find uh, that segment, that Anthony Bourdain segment on the Pine Barrens, just sort of on YouTube, and I can't find it. But um, if anybody can find it, let me know where to find it. Hit us up on Twitter. Thank you for listening. If you did indeed listen all the way to the end, thanks to Greg for having me into the office and spending the time. Uh, uh, enjoy the talk. I always do. Human beings are so fascinating. I mean, we are just fascinating. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. I should say I will gather some information and put it in our bioengineering community page about Fog Pharma, about LifeMine, about Gloucester Biotech Academy, about anything else I can think of. 
If you have comments on that, this podcast, the journal, or anything else that we do, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Brady Huggett. Our gentle reminder to be polite or on Twitter. Let's not use Twitter as a place to uh, viciously attack one another. That's my PSA for the day. Okay, and uh, up next, J.P. Morgan. I will be at that ridiculous, chaotic conference in San Francisco. Maybe I'll see you there. Thank you, and goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.